Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. All right, sometime today, presumably, the State Election Commission is going to be deciding whether or not music mogul Kanye West gets on the Wisconsin ballot. Now, Eric Bilstadt, what would you say Kanye West is most famous for? Well, he he does have some good records, but a lot of people now know him as a a rapper who's married to uh, Mrs. Kardashian. Kim Card, right? He is Mr. Kim Kardashian. A- a- absolutely, that that I think is right. He he's very successful, very very wealthy. But I, I think when you say Kanye West to most people, it's you think, oh, he's he's the guy that's married to Kim Kardashian, mm-hmm. and part of that just whole reality show world that's that, that's out there. Yep. Well, Kanye West. Wants to be the president. Well, I, I don't know if he really wants to be the president. Maybe it, it's just, again, that this great publicity stunt. But Kanye West is trying to get on the ballot. And if you haven't been following the story, it, it's kind of interesting here. Now, keep in mind, Donald Trump won Wisconsin last time around by like 22,000 votes. So that in a, in a state where, you know, you're, you're going to have well over a million votes chaos. That, that's a very, very small margin. So if we were to assume, and I'm not saying I necessarily buy this, but if we're to assume that Wisconsin is going to be as close in 2020 as it was in 2016, any anything can really have an impact on, on the ballot. So Kanye West, for reasons that are still a little bit unclear, he's he's running for president. To get on the ballot in Wisconsin to be president, you need 2,000 signatures. You, so you have to have 2,000 people that say, I, I support this. All right? So that's the background. Um, as it turns out, you had Republican operatives who were helping get signatures to get Kanye West on the Wisconsin ballot. Now, why? Well, the, well, the answer is obvious because I don't know if it's correct thinking, but the thinking is – Gee, Kanye West, if he's on the ballot, there might be some people who would otherwise vote for Joe Biden who will vote for Kanye West. Now, I, I don't I don't know. Yeah, that might be overthinking this, but that might be like too clever by half. But all right, that's kind of what the thinking is going on. But again, keep in mind, in an election where President Trump won last time by 22,000 votes, if you, I don't know, get 20,000 people or more who vote for Kanye West instead of Joe Biden, Theoretically, that that could have an impact. Again, I, I'm not saying I buy into this, but this is the thinking. So you have Republican operatives who were helping get Kanye West on the ballot. The Democratic Party of Wisconsin does not want Kanye West on the ballot because they're worried that he's going to siphon some votes away from Joe Biden. So Republicans want him on the ballot. Democrats don't want him on the ballot, which brings us to the State Elections Commission. Now, the laws in Wisconsin are are extremely clear. Like I say, you need 2,000 valid signatures to get yourself on the ballot. In addition, those signatures under the law need to be turned in by 5 o'clock p.m. on in what would have been last Tuesday, okay, so or the, the previous Tuesday. So that's it. They have to be in by Tuesday. Uh, by Tuesday a week ago, and they have to have 2,000 signatures. So that's kind of the, the story behind it. And there's been some, 
there's been some thing of if they look through the ballot signatures, and this almost always happens, they find some signatures of Mickey Mouse and things like like that. But what happens is, so the elections board they review the signatures, and they turned in like 2,400 and some signatures, and even after striking the questionable ones, there's still more than 2,000 signatures valid that are there to get him on the ballot. Well, here's the problem. Like I say, the law says that the signatures need to be turned in by 5 o'clock p.m. We could go Tuesday. Well, in order to be, in order to be counted. For reasons, for reasons that still escape me, the people showed up at the courthouse to turn in the signatures, and they didn't get there until like, a minute or two after five. Now, I, it's there's a little bit of an argument whether they got there at five o'clock and thirty seconds, or five o one, or five o eight, or whatever. But they, they didn't get there by five o'clock, and the law does say pretty clearly it has to be in by five o'clock. So now they have enough valid signatures to be on the ballot, but they have failed to get there in a timely fashion based on on this technicality. So what happened yesterday is the State Elections Commission staff, these are are the bureaucrats, they issued a paper saying, we believe Kanye West should not be put on the ballot because of the failure to turn the signatures in by 5 o'clock. And that's now what the Elections Commission is going to be deciding. Do you deny him access to the ballot based on... What I think you could argue is a is a very very hyper technical failure. I mean, there was somebody in the clerk's office they they turned them in, but they were a minute or two late. So the question is, all right, what what do we accomplish if in Wisconsin, our our history has been that we try to bend over backwards to allow people ballot access, to to get them on the ballot, even though Kanye West isn't going to win the Wisconsin election, he's not going to get any electoral votes. But historically, in this state, we have bent over backwards to try to find ways to put people on, on the ballot if they have enough valid signatures. Now, you might remember earlier this year, two people running to be the uh, Milwaukee County executive got tossed off the ballot because they they failed to turn in enough valid signatures. If you remember, there, there's a rule that says that you can only circulate petition, you can only circulate signatures for one candidate. And these various candidates went out, they hired this outfit to go get signatures for them, and then the outfit went out and they, they used the same person to go get signatures for multiple candidates. So in that case, the, the law was that the, these signatures were not valid because the law says guys circulating them can only circulate petitions for one candidate and all the other ones that get turned in are, are struck down. So even though the candidates did not know that the person they hired had gone out and had solicited signatures for other campaigns, the elections board said, OK, we, we can't let you on the ballot because this is a violation and those signatures are not we, we can't accept them. This, I think, is a closer call. And by the way, I don't have any problem with with the law. I think it will be interesting to see what happens. And my comment on this is, first of all, again, I, I, the Democrats, like I say, they're the ones that filed the complaint saying it was a couple minutes late, so you shouldn't let him on the ballot. This, again, it is a technicality. 
And I guess the question to me becomes, how significant is this technicality? But here's the thing, and this is where the precedent is. Like I say, the, the tradition in Wisconsin has been that we bend over backwards to try to not use technicalities to keep people off off the ballot. And I do think whatever the State Elections Commission does today sets a precedent because, yes, the law says it has to be turned in by 5 o'clock, and I have no problem if the Elections Commission says, all right, we're going to enforce this. It was They, they came a minute late or two minutes late or, or whatever, but they have enough ballot signatures. But because you missed the deadline by a minute or two or three, we're not going to let you on the ballot. That's fine if they take that position. But I think people need to know, at least in my opinion, you're setting a precedent here because if we are now going to stop we're going to say we're not going to allow people on the ballot because of what, again, I, I think is a technicality. You know, you're a minute or two late. And you're late, and the law says you've got to be there by 5 o'clock. And for the life of me, I do not understand how you can be a couple minutes late in something like this. I mean, you know what the deadline is. It, it, it's like I don't understand how people running for office only turn in like 2,000, if, if, the, if it's 2,000 signatures to get you on the ballot, you're allowed to turn in 4,000. Why you wouldn't turn in three or 4,000 is absolutely beyond me because what happens is inevitably some of these signatures are going to get struck down. We may very well have had a new county executive or at least a different county executive if the people that were running for office I don't know, in my opinion, tended to their business and turned in way, way, way more signatures than they needed, which is what I think responsible candidates do. So I, I, I lay some of this on the candidates. If Kanye West gets struck from the Wisconsin ballot, uh, you know, there, there's no excuses for showing up late. I mean, you know the signatures have to be in at 5 o'clock on August 4th. So what the heck are you doing walking into the courthouse at 5 o'clock on August 4th? I mean, you got the signatures, you get them together, get your act together, and if not turning them in, I don't know, the Friday or the Thursday before, so you have a chance to correct things if there's a problem, well, at least you, you show up at the courthouse at noon to avoid this whole issue. They didn't. Now there is this issue. My point is, if the Elections Commission decides to not allow him on the ballot, and again, I really don't think it's it's going to make much difference one way or the other. But if they do decide to not allow him on the ballot, they are setting a precedent. And from here on in, I think the rule they are saying is if candidates have technical failures, and that in this case, again, I think showing up 30 seconds or a minute late is, is a technical failure, but it is in the, literally it is a failure if they showed up after five o'clock. If that's now how we're going to start interpreting things and striking people off the ballot, fine. That, that's okay. I'm cool with that. But we now have to apply it to all races moving forward, not in this case just a presidential race where you clearly have both political parties that are trying to sort of game the system for what is obviously a fringe candidate. I don't know what the Elections Commission is going to do. I, I don't necessarily think they'd be wrong if they go in either direction, but they do set a precedent. We'll probably know later today. This is Jeff Wagner. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So did you see Steve Bannon, who was one of the Trump 
confidants who actually had a, a position, you know, as a political advisor in the White House for a while, who's ultimate an ultimate loose cannon. See, he got indicted today. And I'll give you some free legal advice from a recovering attorney. Seeing your name and the word indicted in the same sentence is never a good thing. It's, it's just not a, a good thing. But, you know, Bannon's been one of these guys who, uh, again, just the complete and total loose cannon for the longest time. And, and for whatever reasons, whether it's a, a Michael Cohen or a Roger Stone, uh, President Trump is, is attracted to or hangs out with, with these people. And it almost always ends bad and predictably bad. In, in this case, um, this is what the indictment alleges, that Steve Bannon and a handful of other people came up with this this idea, crowd this crowdfunding campaign called We Build the Wall which, of course, was one of President Trump's signature programs. And what what the allegations are is that they went to the general public and they asked people to donate money, which would then be used to help build this border wall that President Trump had, had been talking about. They, they wanted to raise millions of dollars. Now, this is one of the reasons why I would never ever, ever give money to one of these, like, like crowdfunding things, because you really don't know what's going to happen to the dough. It, it just kind of, you know, maybe it's going to work out, maybe, maybe it won't. So anyhow, what, what happened is, as part of, of the deal to get people to give money, and they raised just a ton of money. It was like, I think like $17 million came in in the first week or two. So it, it, as part of the deal, what they, they said was, we're this is the organizers. We're not taking a dime of this. This is all the money is going to be spent on the construction of of the wall. So, you know, give the money that that's fine. We're not getting a dime out of this. All we are is good Americans and we want to help the president be able to develop his, his campaign promise and, and build this wall. OK, that, that's all well and good. But surprise follows surprise, at least to the allegations Um these people who were the organizers, they did end up taking a bunch of money. The allegations are the principal organizer took $350,000, and the allegations are that um, Bannon received more than a million bucks. Now, I haven't read the full indictment, so I don't I don't know how complex the, the scheme was to get the money to these individuals, but that's what the whole indictment is about. And, you know, we're, we're promising we're not going to take money, send us a whole bunch of money, and then when people do, you, you, you take it. So what's that? Oh, yes, that's wire fraud. It's mail fraud. It's just plain out-and-out out theft. And, again, for people who want to defend Steve Bannon or people who want to defend Michael Cohn or people who want to defend Roger Stone. My advice is it's just, it's not worth, it's a waste of spirit to do this. These guys are, are hucksters. Doesn't matter. There's lots of hucksters on the left. There's hucksters on the right. And sooner or later, these schemes end up blowing up. And this is one that blew up, I think, sooner rather than later. And it's another example why, again, when you hear these things, and and people are asking you to send in money. My advice is be really careful. You know what you're doing because there's all sorts of people out there trying to separate you from your hard-earned dollars, and lots of times they're able to get away with it. So, again, assuming the allegations are correct for the sake of argument, um, no sympathy at all for Steve Bannon, no sympathy for these other people. And, and once again, you know, people in President Trump's orbit – 
engaging in conduct which is shady, shifty, and probably illegal. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. They're calling it Fort Lurie. Lurie Lightfoot is the mayor of Chicago. Chicago has been thrown into turmoil with a series of, of protests, many of which have turned violent, lots of police officers injured. Um, you've had situations where there's been rioting and looting on the Miracle Mile in downtown Chicago. It, it's It's just... It's just an absolute and total mess. And Chicago has, to an extent, started cracking down on protesters slash rioters slash, you know, people who are engaging in criminal conduct. That's not unlike what they are finally starting to do in Wauwatosa after allowing protesters to shut down Mayfair Mall and shut down restaurants around uh, Mayfair Mall and show up at a private residence of a now suspended police officer, including one guy bringing a shot, a loaded shotgun and discharging the shotgun. All right. So what's happened in Chicago is Lori Lightfoot, the mayor, has sort of said enough is enough. And in Chicago, like in many communities, they've got an ordinance which prohibits protesting at private residences. I mean, that that's, that's on the books. And what's happened is she has now apparently ordered the police to block off her neighborhood. They're starting to call it Fort Lurie because there's been occasions where the police, w- where riot protesters would try to show up, and they've been prohibited from entering the neighborhood. And they've been told, hey, you're going to be arrested. If you keep doing this, you can't come down these streets. Apparently, what they're also doing is they're like checking IDs of neighbors. It's like a checkpoint. Neighbors have to prove that they actually live on on that block or that two-block radius to, to get in. So they're saying, okay, we're not going to allow people to go and protest at the private residence, in this case, of of the mayor. Now, that is not unlike what they're starting to do in Wauwatosa, which is to say, okay, we're going to enforce our ordinances that are going to prohibit protests on private property at private residences. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I do think it's, it's interesting that it takes protests at a public official's house before authorities decide that they're going to start cracking down on this stuff. But having said that, I, I, I don't have a problem. I think it's I think it crosses a line when you have, for example, it's happened a couple of weeks ago in Wauwatosa, 60 plus people that go over to a private residence at eight o'clock at night with the idea of throwing toilet paper in the trees and disturbing the neighbors and trespassing on their property. So whether it's the mayor of Chicago or a. I guess controversial police officer in Wauwatosa or the mayor of Wauwatosa or the former police chief in the city of Milwaukee, I don't have a problem with cracking down on people who want to protest at people's private residences. How about you? Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Jeff, it's funny how these officials are essentially asking for police protection from the departments that they recently called for the defunding of. Well, yes, that would be ironic. Jeff, isn't it funny when it starts to affect politicians, that's when enough becomes enough? Yes, that would be ironic as well. 
Um, yeah, Jeff, maybe the mayor should take that approach to all the rioting in Chicago um, or just continue to let Chicago burn. In other words, hey, it, it's my house. I don't want protesters coming out there. Now, again, I, I bring this up because I think this is an object lesson to, to everybody. In Chicago and in many of our communities, there are ordinances that prohibit uh, picketing, protesting at private residences. It's one thing to march to City Hall. It's another thing to go into a private residential neighborhood where you have not just like one person's house, but you have, you know, in a couple block area, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 different houses. What happened in Wauwatosa a week ago Saturday at Officer Joseph Menza's, it's actually the residence of his girlfriend, was absolutely appalling. You had 50 or 60 of these, and we'll use the term protesters, and air quotes, who go, they go to a Target, they buy a bunch of toilet paper, and then they caravan over to Wauwatosa with the express idea that they're going to vandalize Officer Mensa, the place where he's living with his girlfriend. You know, when apparently there's kids that are inside and things like that. That should not have been allowed to happen. This isn't a question of saying, okay, we're not going to let people protest, but it's going to say we're not going to allow people to go into private neighborhoods and disturb the peace and engage in disorderly conduct and get engage in vandalism. And it's not just for the target of the protest, but rather it's for all the neighbors that live there. I mean, imagine what would happen if, I don't know, you're, you're living across the street from somebody who's gotten on the wrong side of the mob for whatever reasons, and, and next thing you know, it's a quiet night, you're enjoying in the peace and quiet in your neighborhood, and all of a sudden you have a bunch of people that are running across your property to get to the other property, and they're throwing toilet paper into the trees, and they're making noise and disturbing the peace. You wouldn't put up with that, and and you shouldn't have to put up with that. Now, it is interesting to me, like I say, that in Chicago, well, we're only going to start to get serious about this, and we're going to only start to act proactively once the organizers start to target the mayor's house. But at the same time, um, you know, it's if you've got these ordinances that are there, I think it's perfectly reasonable to enforce them. But you've got to start enforcing them. And if you don't, what ends up happening is you just lose control of things. That's what happened in Wauwatosa. They lost control of stuff. They let a, a relatively small group of people decide to, you know, they're going to be able to shut down Mayfair Mall. They're going to be able to shut down the Cheesecake Factory. They're going to be able to march wherever they want. They let them do whatever they wanted. They ignored different ordinances because they did not want to provoke the, the small mob. And so the group got progressively more aggressive finally showing up at this quote-unquote peaceful protest that was actually just nothing but an excuse for some vandalism, somebody shows up with a loaded shotgun and fires off a round. Now a couple people have been charged with felonies in connection with that, but that was that was predictable. It's why you have to start enforcing the ordinances, and if that means that you end up getting on the wrong side of this group or that group, okay, so be it. But you cannot allow people to make their own decisions. Um, Jeff, I personally believe protesters should not be allowed to go to anyone's house, place of employment, etc. That said, private citizens should be the most protective. Um, well, I think there's, you know, uh, an issue with that, you know, as as well. Uh, George Carlin used the acronym NIMBY. That's not in my backyard. Amazing that the mayor loves the idea of protest until it's against her. Yeah, there there is kind of that irony that's out there. In Wauwatosa, 
they were willing to look the other way until people showed up with shotguns. And at that point in time, that they recognized they had a problem on their hands. In Chicago, well, we're going to allow you to, I don't know, go after the police and vandalize the stores. But now you come out to my house, now it's going to be an issue. Don't fault the mayor for what she's doing, but you got to be able to enforce the law across the board. All right, when we come back, is it time to change the law? I'll explain. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. True, producing the show today and always. You know what today is, in addition to August 20th? Uh, no. It's National Radio Day. It is. Wow. It, it, you know, I mean, you know, it's celebrating, you know, radio in general, local radio in particular. So happy National Radio Day. You know, take uh, tell you what, why don't you knock off at three o'clock? That's OK with me. <laughs> you got it. All right. Yeah, yes, it's, I, I need you till three o'clock then. And we can we can kind of walk out, and maybe take a couple day hours early. So it's National Radio Day. How cool is that? And and, and actually, you know, I if you can't tell if you're a regular listener, I. I just, I mean, I, I always used to close my shows by saying to people that I know you have a lot of different choices when it comes to your radio listening, and I really appreciate you uh, spending the last few hours with me. I, I don't say that at the end of every show anymore, but I, it, it's, it's true. I, this is, it is just such, such a cool medium, and I, I've just been so lucky to have worked in this for as long as, as I have, and it, it's a medium that's like no other. I, I always say this because. You know, for there were a number of years. I, I think I, I did a. I was on TV five days a week for five or six years, you know, a few few years back. And and what I've always said is that that people recognize you from television. They say, "Oh, you're you're the guy that was on Channel Four. Yeah, I, I used to see those segments." And so they recognize you, which can be good or bad. But they recognize you from TV. But they know you from radio. And I always try to explain this to people because radio is such a a personal medium, and especially for those of us who, and I made the decision when I started doing, you know, a radio show in this market years and years and years and years ago, that I, I was going to talk about the stuff that happened to me. So people, people know you, you know, if you're honest and you share the, your experiences and things like that, because radio is such a personal one-on-one medium. Um, TV, you're, you're like looking at a general audience. Radio, we're talking. It, it's especially if you do spoken word radio. It, it, it's a dialogue, and you're kind enough to listen to my radio show in your car or in your kitchen or on the podcasts in your ears when you're you know taking a walk or whatever. It's that personal nature of radio that I think makes it unique in many many respects to you know all sorts of forms of entertainment and information and communication and it's one of the reasons why I, radio radio is always going to be with us now I, I don't know what the future of music radio is going to be given all the different choices and stuff but spoken word radio i think is always going to be around so so happy national radio day all right you may disagree with me on this one and I, I don't know that I would have taken the same position on this a couple of years ago, but I've come to believe that it has to happen. More and more of us are voting by mail. Now, I, as I've said before in the show, that, that's not me. I, I'm, I'm not going to be one of these requesting a ballot in the mail and sending it in. It's, it's not that I don't like the Postal Service and stuff, but for a wide variety of reasons, I like to go and cast my ballot in person. And I don't know in November if my wife and I are going to go on Election Day and stand in line and vote, or more likely what we're going to probably do is when you have the opportunity to early vote, 
Um, to, we'll, we'll probably show up at our local polling place or courthouse early and, you know, we'll fill the stuff out. We put the ballot in the envelope and, and we'll turn it in there. At least that way, I know that it's been received by the clerk's office as opposed to taking the chance with the U.S. mail. And I'm not against, I'm not, look, I, I, I'm, I have ultimate faith in the U.S. mail, but I am concerned that stuff gets overwhelmed and I want to make sure that my vote counts. So here is the deal. In Wisconsin, they anticipate that there's going to probably be out of, I don't know, maybe 2.6 million registered voters, they anticipate that at least half a million, you know, maybe more of those votes are going to be cast by absentee ballot. And and I wouldn't be surprised if if half a million votes is, is low. And by absentee ballot, I mean sent in by the mail. Here's the way the law works right now. The clerk's offices are prohibited by law from starting to count the ballots, you know, opening the envelopes and feeding the ballots through the machines. They are prohibited from doing that by law until Election Day. So in other words, if I go to vote, all right, the Election Day is on Tuesday. Let's say I go the previous Wednesday. I cast my ballot, I put it in the envelope, I seal the envelope, I give it to the woman or the guy at the clerk's office. They cannot open that ballot until the polls open on that election day Tuesday. And then they start the process of feeding the the machines. But the problem, of course, is they've got all sorts of other people that are coming to vote. So there's a limit on the number of machines and how those machines are being used because you've got all the people that are showing up to vote in person. State law says you've got to wait until Election Day to start opening the ballots. If that is not changed, and if the Wisconsin election is as close as it has been historically, it is entirely possible that we are not going to know who won Wisconsin for a couple of days just because logistically to have to feed half a million ballots or more into, you know, those machines starting on Election Day, you're you're not going to get it done. So wouldn't it make more sense to allow clerk's offices to start tabulating? I'm not talking about releasing the results, but at least start feeding these ballots into machines before Election Day, as opposed to having to wait to that day. All right, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And maybe I would have had a different position on this two or three or four years ago. But given the fact that you're going to have so many people that are choosing to vote by mail, given the fact that you're going to have clerk's offices, I think, overwhelmed with early voting, whether it's early voting in person or through the mail, I candidly think it makes sense to allow them to start opening the ballots and feeding the machines so we don't have to wait two or three days to figure out who won elections. All right, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And candidly, for people who are worried about things like fraud, I, I, I don't, I, I really don't think it's that much different than allowing, you know, is, is they're going to have to be opened at some point in time. You're need, going to need to have the controls that are there. But doesn't it make more sense just to get a head start on the stuff in order to prevent being overwhelmed? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, now look, I'm, 
I'm not arguing that you should start necessarily tabulating the, the votes, you know, before the polls close. But there's a difference between tabulating the votes and just opening up the envelopes and, and feeding the in, feeding them into the machine so you, you can get them counted in a, a fashion. There, I mean, there, there's a difference. It's like when you go to vote in person and you put the ballot in the machine. It, it doesn't tabulate the, the machine. It doesn't tabulate the votes that are there until you know, who voted for who until you actually go and do this other stuff that you have to do. All I'm saying is I think it would make sense if we, unless, unless we want to overwhelm clerks' offices, and, and that's, that's frankly what's going to happen because, you know, in, in the city of Milwaukee, you know, you're going to, again, let's assume, for example, that there's a huge number of absentee ballots that come in. You know, they're, it, it could take a couple days, theoretically, for them to feed all these ballots into the machine. So, I mean, some people say, well, you know, is it a problem? You know, I'm not impatient. I can wait for the results. Well, I, I don't know that that's good for democracy. I mean, if, if, if somebody can convince me that there's a real likelihood of fraud happening, Maybe I'll reconsider, but the more I think about it, I, I I think you could put safeguards in just to allow people to start this process, get it underway sooner rather than later. All right, let's talk to Dennis in New Berlin. Dennis, you're on WTMJ. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Uh, my thought is that, uh, you know, they got the time to check out the voter. They don't have to open up the ballot and just have a pile that, on a, the election day, they just open them up and plug them into the machine. I think it would go faster. There would be less people there. And, you know what I'm saying, if I don't know how the ballots go there, if they're totally sealed, yeah, well, or if you can check them out prematurely. Well, I think, I'm not sure what you mean by check them out. I mean, what, what happens is, so let's say, I mean, the way it works now is you request a ballot over the, by mail, or alternatively, you go in to early vote. You're, you're there the Wednesday beforehand. You fill out your ballot, and then what you do is you fold it up, you put it in an envelope, you seal it, and then you give it to the you know person at the polling place, or it comes in through the mail. So then they have these huge boxes and boxes and boxes and bags of ballots, and then what they do under the law now is they're not allowed to open them up and start feeding them into the machines until Election Day. My point would be given the fact that so many, and look, historically, it, it hasn't been that much of a problem. If we were only talking about, you know, 1% of the votes coming in, again, early voting or by mail, it wouldn't be that big a deal. And it, it hasn't been. But that's not the trend that we're seeing, whether it's coronavirus or more and more, you've got people who are, uh, again, they're trying to do this more. So you can make an argument. Some people think that there's going to be more ballots that come in this way than people actually who go and show up and vote on the polls in November. Now, I don't know if that's true, but I'm just picturing, I mean, imagine if you're in the clerk's office, you're trying to conduct an election, and you've got tens of thousands of ballots that are stacking up that you now have to wait until Election Day to, to open. Again, I'm not saying tabulate the results. You know, I mean, that, of course, that, that's illegal. It should be illegal. But if you can open them up, start feeding them into the machines, so then on Election Day, when the polls close, you can hit whatever button you have to pull, hit, and then it tabulates the votes in the machine. It just, to me, it makes it much more efficient. Jeff in Glendale. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Yeah. 
Yeah, hey, Jeff. Um, yeah, I, I have no problem with the, uh, you know, feeding the ballots in the machines, you know, in the days prior just to, you know, just to keep up with it. As long as, as you said, nothing's tabulated yep. and results aren't released early, that would affect people's decisions as to whether or not they want to come and vote because they've heard, you know, right. uh, early oh. results or something like that. Oh, yeah. You know, the other, yeah, yeah. The other thing, though, you know, I, you know, on a related note, I don't even have a problem with, you know, if ballots, if, if people are all overwhelmed that there's going to be so many ballots by mail in all the different states and that the post office isn't going to get them there on time, I mean, why shouldn't a vote, you know, even if it arrives the next day, as long as it was put in the mail and postmarked by the proper date, just like taxes, you know, as long as we mail our taxes by April 15th, they arrive at the federal government at different times, you know, some days later than others. But as long as they were postmarked, I think they should all count. I mean, why Why would they not, you know? Well, and, I, I mean, uh, I, thanks for calling, Jeff. See, I'm not with you on this one. But I, I'll explain why. Because it, it could take... It, it could take days for 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 the votes to to come in. So I mean, I, I do think you need some degree of certainty, and, and that's why Wisconsin law right now says the ballot has to be received by the time the polls close. Um, so, and if you don't get it, be, and I, I guess because like I say, the concern is, all right, w- when do we declare a winner in an election? Because we, we don't know necessarily how many ballots have been requested. See, a lot of people request ballots and then they never send them in. You know, th- there's always going to be some of that. So what do we say? Okay, we're, we, we can't declare a winner for two days or five days or 10 days because we're waiting for these different, you know, ballots that might have been postmarked to come in. No, I mean, I, I, I'm not willing to go that far. But I, I am willing to say maybe we should start opening up the ballot sooner, as long as we can guarantee the results aren't going to come out. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. During Eric's newscast, he played the clip of Tony Evers talking about the, the need to wear masks. And I, I, I don't I don't want to have the mask debate, but I, I do want to just throw this out. And my question is, all right, f- first of all, we have mandatory mask rules. And as I was talking about yesterday, even though you have these rules, lots and lots of people aren't following them. California has one of the most strict mask rules in the country. It's a statewide order. And people are supposed to wear masks both inside and out. The L.A. Times did this feature yesterday. And I think, that, and again, it was anecdotal that they went out and they, they, they had reporters sit at various public areas just to look what was going on. And what they found is about 47 percent, so less than half, of the people were actually wearing masks properly. Like 47% were wearing masks. Another 10% like had masks on, but they were around their neck. And then the rest of the people, 40 plus percent, just, just were not following the rules. So that's always going to be the problem. My guess is if you drive around the city of Milwaukee that requires masks to be worn outdoors unless you're going to guarantee that you're going to be more than two yards away from people. My guess is you probably, compliance, maybe 30%, maybe 35%. People just aren't doing it. There's a story in the New York Times today um, where the New York Times reporters did the same thing that the L.A. Times reporters did, and that is, again, that they went out, and again, it's, it's not necessarily scientific, but they looked at various areas all throughout the city of New York, and they were looking for compliance with their rules. And, and what 
what they found was, well, maybe a little bit better than in L.A., but in general, like 60% compliance or so, a little bit more in some neighborhoods, a little bit less in others, more compliance with women than with men. But the bottom line is, even though you've got these rules that are in place, people people aren't necessarily complying. And the reality is there's a limit as to how much you can do. On top of that, there's some new studies that are starting to come out that says, if I could summarize it fairly, it would be to say that, okay, wearing a mask doesn't hurt. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing that. But there's some studies out there now saying it it might not make that much difference in most situations. Now, that's not an encouragement for people not to do it. And I understand what the CDC says and all. But, you know, if you look at a number of the areas across the country that have seen spikes in coronavirus, these are areas of the country that have also had very, very stringent mask rules. Now, you can maybe make the argument that, well, if they didn't have the mask rules, things would be even worse. And I don't know. That's trying to prove a negative. You can't do that. And maybe you can make the argument saying, well, the problem, it's not with the mask rule. It's that you don't have people complying with the mask rule. And maybe there's something to that. But there's also this other possibility that's out there, which is, you know, maybe our, our way out of this is, isn't necessarily by the mandatory mask rules in a lot of situations. It, that's just a possibility that's there. So then the question becomes, what, what's next? And there's a really interesting um, piece that, that I stumbled across, you know, just yesterday. And, and here's the headline. Here's what it says. Forced isolation may be the only way to stop resurgence of the virus. And it looks at what they've done in some other countries. And, and here's what it essentially says, that, that if, if you really want to stop the spread of the virus, what you have to do is you have to take the people who test positive, who you can identify as having the virus, and you need to quarantine them um, until their, their symptoms pass away pass until the symptoms pass so here here's the issue and then what they do is they go on and do these studies follow me on this and it says that even with people who who have covid what they find is they tell the people okay you're you're sick you you've got this don't go out for two weeks what they're finding in the studies is that a large number of people even if they know they have it they still go out they don't follow the mandatory quarantine rules. So in some countries, what they're doing is they're saying, okay, here, here's the deal. If you test positive, if we're able to identify you as somebody that has the disease, we're not going to trust you to not leave your house. We're not going to trust you to not leave your apartment. What we're going to do is we are going to remove you from your residence. And you will be required to go to one of these centers that we set up. And, you know, it's like a, like a giant hospital ward. Um, we're going to convert a, an exhibition hall. You know, you've got the thing at State Fair Park where you, it's, I think, still sitting vacant, you know, where they have all the hospital things. If you test positive for COVID-19, we are going to mandate that you leave your house and you go to one of these quarantine centers where you will be kept under surveillance until you are better. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, evidence would suggest that if you really want to stop the spread of this, that's that's the thing that you need to do. 
You need to guarantee that once you've identified people that have it, they're not going to be able to have contact with the public. I'm not willing to go that far to deal with this, but are you? 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, think of them as mini internment camps for people who test positive for COVID-19. Get everybody out of the house, get them together, and then keep them there until they get better. Does this make sense to you? 855-616-1620. I'm not willing to go this far, but I don't know that there's anything we're going to be able to do short of a vaccine, which is going to, I don't know, effectively stop the spread. Are you willing to go that far? We discuss in a minute. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Okay, so here's what they're doing in New Zealand. They, they went 102 days without a case of of coronavirus. What happened is... In one of the communities, they then had a a new cluster of outbreaks. What New Zealand did is they took 17 people who had tested positive, including two children below the age of 10, and they put them into a centralized quarantine. They didn't trust them to shelter at home or to isolate themselves. They they said, okay, and you're going to be in this centralized area. Think of it as an internment camp uh, until you you clear. Um, In Australia... Right, they did. They they do checks on people who test positive. Three thousand checks last month on people who were told to isolate at home. Eight hundred were out and about. So the question is, would we put up with something like this in the United States? You test positive, we don't trust you to go home and isolate and not contact with people. We say, okay, you're going to have to go to. We've set up this exhibition hall or or whatever, and you're going to have to wait, or the basketball gym where we're going to set up cots, and you're going to have to be there for a couple weeks. I don't think we'd put up with this, but if you want to get a handle on it, it might be what you have to do. Let's start with Dave in Oak Creek. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. Nice talking to you. What do you think? Is this going too far? Well, ah, well, it's history repeating itself. If we look at good old Doc Holliday... Back in his day, with the tuberculosis, they had sanitariums. And that did both. They, they were able to treat the, the person to the extent that they could at the time. But it also took that person away from the general population to minimize or, you know, uh, keep the uh, tuberculosis from spreading more than it had to. Right. Now, like, uh, would that be effective? Uh, only if there was a law enacted that forced it. Yeah. But the only chance a person has right now, I, I believe that the, the virus is so prevalent and so far-reaching throughout our nation, the only thing, but there's only two things you can really do, realistically, is be smart uh, don't overly expose yourself to those who you who may have it, which means everybody else. But you know, in a smart way, mm-hmm. and or wait for the vaccine to come out. That's just where we're at. In other words, in other words, live with it, but try to be smart. Hopefully, you live with it. Now, right. if you've got pre-existing conditions, right. then you got to be smart enough to realize, hey, this could kill me. So I'm going to be safer. Yep, and, and, th- uh, and it means you think, you- no, I, I understand, no, th- and that means you have to take extra precautions. I mean, I've told this story before. I have a couple friends who are in in the high risk category, 
And, and so, I mean, they, they, they don't go out at all. I, I mean, I go out, but I, I try to be smart about it. But but they don't go out at all, and it, it's just it's awful, you know. But at the same time, they don't want to get this, all right? But you do say you, you need a law. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, what if you have a health commissioner that comes down and says, okay, this this is the deal. We're um we're going to, and I'm talking. I'm not saying that there's any plans to do this, but we've decided that the only way that we can effectively stop the spread of this is to quarantine people who test positive. So anybody that tests positive, they will be required to go to th- this location that we've set up at State Fair Park, and you're going to be required to like check in, and you're not going to be allowed to see anybody. Nobody can visit you. You're going to have to be there until you know you no longer have this disease. I don't think we would put up with that, but yet that's what they're doing in some countries. All right, Mark in Kenosha. Hi, Mark. You're on WTMJ. Hey, thanks for having me. Sure. You know, I think that it's a a common sense issue. And the problem is we gave everybody plenty of chances, plenty of opportunities to stop the spread the common sense way. But it seems like America has just lost that common sense. We've tried everything else. uh, Face masks. Uh, people are still uh, balking at the the face mask issue. I mean, what other option do we have left? I, I think that it's not an ideal solution, but it, it might be one of the only options that we have left. Is I, I can't trust anybody to to do what they're supposed to do nowadays, and uh, I don't I don't trust half of America as far as I can throw them when it comes to if you're if you're testing positive. You need to be staying away from people. If people are still going out and about and doing that stuff, uh, a little bit of perspective. I go all across southeast Wisconsin as a service technician, and I'm also a type 1 diabetic, so I'm in that higher risk area. And on a day-to-day basis, I just ran into a couple people today that are walking around the store that are just not wearing masks, even though they're required, and I'm trying to avoid them as best I can. But still, I'm an essential worker, so right. I'm so, forced okay, to Mark, go to so work. Let, so let me let me ask you the, 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 let me ask you the question then. So you you you're you're feeling pretty good or whatever, but you go in, you get one of these tests, comes back that you're positive for COVID nineteen. If the Kenosha Health Administrator said, "All right." You, you now can't go home. What we're going to do is you are going to be required. We're taking you down to the, the civic center where we've set up all these different beds and you're going to have to stay there. You're not going to be able to go to work. You're not going to be able to see anybody other than the other people who are in this thing. And you're going to be there for a week or two or three. All right. You going to do it? I'll be there as long as I need to. Reason being is uh, my father, for example, has very poor health right now. If I were to even go around my house or his house, which is next to mine, I could pass it to him and kill him. Of course, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there and stay away from anybody and everybody I know because I care about them and I care about the other people in my community. Okay, thanks for the call, Mark. I know Mark says that he would willingly go into isolation you know, at, at the government orders, the health inspector says this is what we need to do to keep people safe. So here we'll we'll see you in a few weeks. No going to work, no doing anything. You just sit on one of the the cots in these giant rooms that we've in in the arena or whatever. That that's that's pretty much what they're doing. I'm looking at some pictures of what they do in in some of these other countries. I, I'm sorry, I just I, I I don't think we're there at this point in time in this country that we're willing to do that. But I. I'm open to the conversation. Jim in Oconomowoc. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Would you support something like this? 
I would not. Okay. Tell me um, why. Two, two reasons. One, I, I think there's too much of a, a lag time between the time a test is given and the time the results come back. So you give somebody a test, and it takes you six days to get the results back. They don't know whether they're positive or negative, and if they're not sick, we're still spreading it around that way. Right. Second of all, I believe we have a significant number of false positives. The, the governor of Ohio's situation is prime example there. Right. They gave him a test on a Friday. He tested positive. They gave him a test the next day. It was negative. The next day it was negative again. So I, I just don't think we can put a, a, a well, law well, or a protocol in place where if it's taking us nine days to tell you whether you're positive or negative, you've already spread it all over the place by that time. Well, right. And so that, that's our problem. Well, thanks. Well, and the other problem is if you were to do something like this, you know what I think the first thing would happen? I don't think people would be going to the doctor's. I just I think you would have more and more people who would just simply say, look, um, I, I don't feel good. Maybe I have this. Maybe I, I don't. But you know what? I know if I go in and I test positive, I'm, I'm now going to be taken from the emergency room or the doctor's office and I'm going to be transported to State Fair Park where I'm going to be held against my will. I'm going to be in my own little, you know, COVID-19 bubble for the next week or two weeks or three weeks. I, I mean, I think that the practical effect is people are going to say, I'm not going to the hospital. I, I'm not going to get tested. And I don't think that that's a good thing. Now, here's a text, Jeff. If you had Ebola, you would be locked up really quick. Why not with COVID? Well, okay. Is is COVID the same as Ebola? Is COVID going to be the same as tuberculosis? I mean, we, you know, we we don't lock people up who, who test positive for measles, for example. I, I bring this up because, again, nobody's talking. I don't think about doing this in this country yet. But if if the mask stuff doesn't work and the numbers continue to rise, and we don't have a vaccine by October, and then you have the flu coming on, I, I don't be surprised if you see people start talking about more extreme sort of measures. I think this would be extreme. I think the effect of this would be, like I say, people wouldn't go in to get tested, which wouldn't be good in the first place. But it's something that's on the table. Um, maybe not in front of everybody yet, but it's on the table. And if you don't think there's health commissioners across this country that might do this or try to do it, well, you're kidding yourself. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Goodyear Tires is wrong. President Trump is wrong. They're all wrong. I'm right. Let me explain the story. If you haven't followed this, um, Goodyear Tires, which is, of course, big, big United States company, they found themselves in the news a couple days ago because at, at a training session. Now, there, there's some question about whether or not this is a corporate policy, that is, of, of the company or whether this was just a, a training session that some, you know, local local Goodyear plant was, was doing, all right? And there, there's some issue ab- about that. But anyhow, they're talking about acceptable attire, things that people can wear to work. And there's a one of the employees takes a screenshot of this slide that they put up, and it's talking about stuff that is acceptable to wear to work. Um, like, and we're talking about like logo t-shirts and hats and things like that. It says what's acceptable are t-shirts, um, or things supporting 
Black Lives Matter, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender pride, LGBT. So it's okay to wear stuff showing your support for that. It is unacceptable to wear clothing that says um, all lives matter, make America great attire, politically affiliated slogans or material, or blue lives matter. So if you wear those slogans, it's unacceptable. If you wear the stuff that says Black Lives Matter or, again, stuff supporting the LGBT community, that, that's okay. And somebody takes a picture of this. This story then ends up going viral. Uh, Goodyear has really not been incredibly forthcoming about this other than to say that this wasn't a corporate training thing or at least not a, a, a across the, in the entire country. Well, President Trump finds out about this, and President Trump sends out a tweet saying that Goodyear should be boycotted, that customers should boycott uh, Goodyear over ban on campaign attire. Here's the first part of the Wall Street Journal story today. President Trump called for a boycott of of Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company in response to reports that the company showed a slide to workers prohibiting the wearing of politically affiliated slogans such as Make America Great Again Apparel. In a tweet yesterday morning, Mr. Trump wrote, Don't buy Goodyear Tires. They announced a ban on Make America Great hats. Buy better tires for far less. You know, end quote. All right, our, our number. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think there's a couple interesting aspects to the story. First of all, I wish President Trump would knock off the stuff of of let's boycott American companies. Okay? I, I understand why he might have been unhappy with this particular uh slide. Um, first of all, like I say, I'm not sure it's a, a company-wide Goodyear policy. But at, at the same time, all right, urging people to boycott a, a major American company does nothing. It, it does nothing to help the employees or the company or the investors or, or anything. So I, I think the boycott idea, and I say this repeatedly when it comes from let's boycott this, when you get the calls from the left or you get the calls from the right, it's kind of like, oh, really? All right, you know, can't we figure out something else to do? That's number one. So I think President Trump is wrong to call for the boycott. Secondly, though, I, I think I think Goodyear, and, and this is the problem, to the extent that this is a corporate policy, I, I think Goodyear, I think the policy is, is wrong. And, and hear me out on this. I think when you look at a lot of the social justice movements that are out there, I think they're they're intertwined with politics, and, and that's just the reality of it. And if you're going to say you, you can't wear a T-shirt that says Blue Lives Matter, then I think you should also say you can't wear a T-shirt that says Black Lives Matter. I, and, and I'm not advocating for that policy, but I do think that you need to be consistent. I think, candidly, the, the employer, in this case it would be Goodyear, it would be any employer, I think given all that's going on right now, you'd probably be better off just – saying, okay, we're we're not going to allow a tire that talks about like social justice movements and then you don't get into the the whole hassle of trying to distinguish, okay, well what does it mean if you've got the Black Lives Matter t shirt versus the Blue Lives Matter t shirt? Um it, you, you don't risk 
alienating people or getting people upset if somebody's wearing the pro-Trump thing and somebody's wearing the pro-Biden thing. I think employers have every right to come out with different dress codes. And if that means the dress code says we're going to steer employees away from wearing T-shirts that have potentially divisive sayings on them without getting into the merits of any of these, I, I think they're within their rights. So 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line, to the extent that this is a policy of Goodyear, and that's still at issue, I, I think Goodyear, I think they need to revisit this particular policy because they're, they're trying to, in, in some respects, split hairs without necessarily a, a, a clear distinction as to what's appropriate and what's not. On the other hand, President Trump calling for a boycott over this issue. I, I think there's perhaps more important things that the president should be concerning himself with. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. See, if I ran a company, I, my, my policy with employee dress code would be, look, leave the politics, whatever your politics are, leave the, the social justice stuff. Leave it at the doorstep, not telling you you can't have these positions. And if you want to talk about it in the break room, that that's fine. But when when you're at work, I, I don't want to get into the argument about somebody showed up with a Black Lives Matter T-shirt. Somebody else has showed up with a Blue Lives Matter T-shirt. And now I've got to decide what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Just wear a white T-shirt and then and then, you know, express your feelings. I'm not telling you you can't do it, but but do it on your own time because it's divisive. Where I think Goodyear went wrong is I think they're trying to, to split Hairs on this, and they're saying, okay, some of these things are okay, some of them aren't okay, and it it leads to a lot of confusion. President Trump, for his perspective, with all due respect, I don't think should be attacking American companies. Let's talk to RJ in Milwaukee. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Real well, thank you. What do you think? Well, I agree with you. I mean, President Trump should never call for a boycott of an American company. I mean, it, it, whether, you know, that's his feelings about it or whatever, I mean, you, you've got an American company, you know, making American-made goods with American workers, and you're going to boycott them. I mean, it, it, let's build our economy. Well, and, you know, I mean... Go ahead. No, I was going to. I mean, you know, remember he did the same thing with Harley a while back, you know, and he 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 didn't like a couple of Harley's policies. So let's let's boycott Harley. Don't buy Harley. Buy okay. How, how does that help anything? Now, I I understand that maybe you want to try to convince them to change their policy, or you can call it out. But th- this idea don't don't buy Goodyear tires, or, or don't buy Harley's, or whatever. It, it to me, it's counterproductive. <laughs> it, it just doesn't make any sense. Right. Now, you know, I, I and I understand your point about splitting hairs. I mean, you know, the Black Lives Matter, you know, wasn't necessarily political. Right. You know, I mean, it, it you know, it, it was so sociological, right. I, you know, whatever yeah. term you want to use. But then when the other, you know, things came out like All Lives Matter and, and right. Blue Lives Matter, that made it political because then all of a sudden, you know, right. there were, you know, there was a disagreement. And I you know, I'm going to agree with you. I mean, uh, you know, plain T-shirts, right. you know, leave leave the political 
you well, know, what well, now is perceived as a political statement. Well, well right, or, right. Or, or how about, I mean, do you, let, let's say that you have a huge, this was, this was at a, at a plant they have in Topeka. So let's say that there's a huge, a pro-life versus pro-abortion debate going on and, and half the people are showing up with pro-life t-shirts and the other half are showing up with, you know, pro-choice t-shirts and, and all it's doing is, is driving a wedge between the employees. I mean, I, I think the company right. would be within its rights saying, look, okay, I, I don't know if you want to view this as a social or a moral or a political issue, but, you know, in the workplace, just, you know, we we don't want any sort of sloganeering, period, and then then we don't have to deal with this issue about what's appropriate and what's not. No, thank, thanks right. for the call. I appreciate it. And again, that's that, that's that's my point. And as far as the, the issue of, of boycott, don't buy Goodyear tires, oh, come on. Andrew in Green Bay. Andrew, you're on WTMJ. Hey there. Uh, so my kind of issue was essentially it was never a real political issue because, you know, you have supporters of Black Lives Matter or supporters of Blue Lives Matter or All Lives Matter supporters on both sides of the spectrum. You're not going to have like that kind of issue. I think what I understand was they basically didn't want people campaigning for political parties. Essentially, they didn't want people wearing MAGA attire and in the same way they wouldn't want people wearing Biden attire. Sure. And, uh, it basically, it came down to being a, a like socioeconomic issue, essentially. So it, it, it kind of borders on that fact, like like you said with the previous caller, you kind of have to be careful because it is a bit of a slippery slope. You might have people going a little bit too far right. with what they're wearing in some senses, too. And you don't want to have that conflict between the boys. Right, exactly. You just, you just I mean, thanks, which, which is why I wouldn't, if I were running the company, I wouldn't be splitting hairs. And, it, and it's not, it's not saying that you oppose the Black Lives Matter movement or that you're anti-cop or, or any of this type of stuff. It's like, okay, I, I want you to come to work and I want you to make the darn tires. <laughs> that's, that, that's it. And then, you know, when, when you go home or when you, when you leave, that, that's fine. Do whatever you want. Put on your Make America Great hat or, you know, put on your, you know, social, ju- whatever, whatever social justice issue you want to support, that, that's fine, but don't bring this into the workplace, where I think this slide, and again, I'm not sure, in fairness to Goodyear, whether this is a company-wide policy or whether this was just some, you know, localized training thing that that went on, and I I think Goodyear did a really poor job of letting it get out of control, but at the same time, you know, I think President Trump jumped on this, and to me, this is one that I, I think has probably been blown out of proportion. Goodyear Goodyear should have a consistent policy, and, and maybe the president shouldn't be calling for the boycott of American companies. And I do understand that Goodyear makes products overseas as well, but still, it's an American country company. Uh, Goodyear stock was was down um, a, a bit on, on yesterday after the tweet. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, Melissa, we agree we're not moving to California anytime soon. No. It's so crazy because we were talking about this yesterday off the air. Just how many crazy things... California has. The wildfires right now are raging so badly in the Bay Area and really all over the state, mainly in the north, though. But it's crazy out there. So you've got the wildfires. You've got massive power outages. Mm -hmm. Again, the, the whole electrical grid is up for question. You've got... 
incredible problems with homelessness and all the attendant things that so uh, that I mean so you have all these people just living on the streets mm-hmm. in a number of these cities you've got crime that is pretty much out of control earthquakes you've got earthquakes <laughs> you've got mud, mud slides. slides you've got an incredibly high cost of living the Kardashians that's it okay. you want to stay away from all of that oh, okay I, I have all right I have jeez oh, I wasn't it's funny you should mention I forgot I, I have this thing I, I, I never quote stories, but here I have it. It's okay. from the Daily Mail. Okay, mm-hmm. so it did that which is this kind of like sort of a National Enquirer kind of it thing is. out of Great Britain. But Hollywood apocalypse. The rich and famous are fleeing in droves as liberal politics and coronavirus have turned the city of dreams into a cesspit plagued <laughs> by junkies and violent criminals. <laughs> Just that headline there. Right, it, well, click, it got, it got my attention. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, I, and I, I think, I don't know if we talked about it on the, or on the air or off the air, but it's interesting because my, my niece, you know, grew up in Pewaukee. She's a senior now. She will be a senior this fall at San Diego State. And I was kind of curious as to whether she was going to be a California girl and just say, I'm, I'm never, this is, this is it. She's in San Diego, yeah. which is just a beautiful place, mm-hmm. but you know, they, they've certainly had all these different issues and she's, she's Have looking you talked at, to her, does she want to come back? Uh, well, she's looking at law schools, but like on the East Coast. She's, I oh, think she'd good. like to go to Washington, oh, you know, nice. she'd go, you know, mm-hmm. which I think would be a great place to go to law school or something like that. I mean, but, but no, I mean, it's not like, oh gosh, I'm in California and I'm never going to leave there. I yeah. think she's kind of, and then, I mean, I think she enjoys her time, but I, I don't get the sense that it's a forever place. Don't get the sense mm, it's a forever yeah. place. And candidly, if you look, the other thing is if you look at the cost of living, mm-hmm. um, if it's a forever, it's one thing when dad and uncle Jeff are, are helping like pick up the costs <laughs> for college and rooms and stuff. When you're on your own though. It, it, it's a different dynamic then too. So, Pretty um, pricey. so I doubt it, but mm-hmm. now he couldn't pay me to go to California. Yeah. All right. Um, survive today, thrive tomorrow. Throughout the pandemic, that's been the mantra of Good Karma Brands, our parent company of the Good the Parent Company of WTMJ. That refrain has also infused our enduring commitment to bring you the latest news, traffic, and weather, compelling shows. Please, I hope so. And discussion about the issues that matter, and our unrivaled play-by-play coverage of the Packers, Brewers, and Bucks. All this week, we'll tell the story behind GKB, who we are, and why what we do matters. All right. Speaking of that. Over the last day or so, I think I have gotten more feedback, both in person and via texts and emails, to one story we talked about yesterday, and 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 the the up the degree of uproar is not going away. I am talking about the decision that some local school boards have made with little or no notice to the people they serve to change plans and move from in-person instruction to virtual instruction. In particular, what's been going on in Oak Creek, Franklin, and in Mequon, Thienesville, and in Kenosha, more on that in just a minute, has been absolutely appalling, where the plan was and, and people were told, the kids are going to be coming back. We're, we're going to try it. And then kind of at the last minute, the school boards decided to reverse themselves. Well, Kenosha has now reversed itself on its reversal. And Kenosha is now allowing that they are going to have, you know, in-person learning as an option because they listened to the community and they cared about what the community had to say. In Mequon, Thienesville and in Oak Creek, Franklin, they don't care what the community 
thinks. And I, I mean, I told this story yesterday. I, I knew something was up because my 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 Twitter feed and my my email stuff starts just going nuts uh, two days ago because after tell in Mequon-Thienesville, after telling the parents that hey, we're going to have an option for virtual learning, but otherwise we're we're going to be in person instruction with no notice at all. The school board on Monday night in a Zoom meeting decided that they were going to backtrack on what they had said before and essentially close the schools to in-person instruction. So all the parents who had made childcare things based on what their what they had been told before that the rug was pulled out from under them. To add insult to injury in Mequon Thienesville all the fees and stuff that were due for the in-person learning, those were due on Friday. So all these parents had shelled out all this money on Friday, and then on Monday the school board pulls the plug. And the school board, as a justification, and the superintendent says, well, you know, we're, we're, concerned, we're, we're concerned about the, these, these outbreaks. And as a practical matter, it, it's one thing if you look at what's going on in the city of Milwaukee, but if you look at Oak Creek Franklin, you look at Mequon, Thienesville, Ozaukee County, Washington County, you do not have major outbreaks of coronavirus. You, you just don't. Statistically, it's not there. And yet the school boards have decided to, figuratively speaking, or maybe not figuratively speaking, maybe literally, um, just wave at the taxpayers and the parents in the school district, except not using all the fingers on their hands. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, again, I this is a huge issue. And I think this is one of these things where you have some teachers many school superintendents and school boards that are tone deaf to what the general public wants. And that is they want the schools to try in-person instruction. And I guess one of the big things that is so frustrating to so many people, you understand MPS. MPS has a MPS has, has issues. And I don't mean education that, you know, the, the coronavirus has been the, the epicenter of coronavirus pretty much from the beginning has been the city of Milwaukee. All right, so you have a number of different issues that confront MPS that don't confront kids in, in Oak Creek, Franklin, that don't confront kids in Ozaukee County, that don't confront kids in Waukesha County, that don't confront kids in, in Washington County. If you do surveys of the parents and the parents come back overwhelmingly and say, we want to have the option to send our kids to school in person. Shouldn't the school board do what the parents want, at least to try it out? And then if it turns out that, okay, all of a sudden we've got these kids that are sick, all right, maybe you have to move to plan B. But to give in at the last minute, I think, is a betrayal of the parents in these different school districts. And one of the effects of this are going to be, there's just going to be a lot of parents that aren't going to be sending their kids back to these schools because they'll, they'll find alternatives. They'll find private schools. They'll find the parochial schools. They'll find the schools that are offering what they think is important because if, if I had to use one word to describe, I think, the feelings of parents in a number of these communities, that word would be betrayal. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. No transparency, flip-flopping, and betrayal of the parents. I, I think a lot of these school boards have done incredible damage to their reputations 
and the reputation of the educational process in the community. And and they need to do what Kenosha did, which is say, okay, you know, never mind. We're going to try it. We're going to do what the community wants, and we'll have a plan B in place. Is that too much to ask for? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. The, the level of unhappiness over some of these school board flip-flops, um, I, I haven't seen anything like this in quite a while. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Hey, another reason. Think about whether or not you want to avoid California. It is entirely possible that by the end of this week, if you are a person who takes advantage of the rideshare services like Uber or Lyft, um, they will no longer be operating in the entire state of California. Here, here, here is is the deal. You know, they they call it the the gig economy, which is where. I don't know, maybe you've got a full-time job, but you decide you want to make some extra money, so you decide that, hey, I'm, I'm going to be a driver for Uber, and I'm going to sign up, and I'm going to you know, do the app, and I'm going to go through the training, and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll drive when I feel like it. I mean, I'll, I'll go out, and I'll, I'll do it a couple nights a week if I feel like it, or you know, sometimes I, I don't, and I'll, I'll make a little bit of money um, doing this thing. All right, historically, and the model for like Uber and Lyft and, and these rideshare places, the, the model is... The drivers are independent contractors. They're not employees. Uber Uber doesn't guarantee salaries. Uber doesn't pay benefits. Lyft doesn't pay benefits. Um, and they, but they, you know, you, you get to, you get to drive as much as you want. You get to drive as little as you want. That, that's the idea. You get to call your hours. You can decide when you want to do it. And uh, again, so some people work a lot. Some people work a little, but you're not an employee like, I don't know, you perhaps are at the place where you work. You know, you are an independent contractor. All right. You could stop working anytime you, you want. That's the deal. California passed a law a little while ago that essentially identifies people who work in jobs like Uber and Lyft and say that, you know, they would have to be treated by the companies as employees. So in other words, they'd have to be entitled to benefits. They'd have to be entitled to regular hours. All the rules that would apply to your typical employee would now apply to like Lyft or or Uber drivers. Well, Uber and Lyft say that that is not our business model. We, We couldn't make money doing that. The only reason we're able to succeed is because Again, we, we don't pay these benefits. You can argue about whether that's good or not, but they say, you know, we, we let people come and go as, as they want. This is the deal. It's the gig economy. You pick up these, these gigs here and there. You get to decide your hours. You make these, you make the money. California's law essentially says that that's not going to work. The people that drive for Lyft or Uber, we're going to classify you as employees and you're going to get all the benefits that a typical employee would get. Well, Uber and Lyft challenged that, that law in court. They argued that the law was inappropriate and they argued that they weren't covered under the law. They lost that, that lawsuit um, in front of a court of appeals earlier on this week. And so right now, well, a story that I'm, I'm looking at is that um, it is very likely that Uber and Lyft will shut down this week in, in California unless 
they're either exempted from the law, and the legislature could come in and do that, but they're probably not going to be. But the bottom line is that, that ride-sharing in California may end up being being suspended. And what that's going to mean is that there's millions of Californians who use Uber and Lyft. They might find themselves suddenly just un- unable to do that anymore. And for the thousands of people who make money driving on a part-time basis for Uber and Lyft, they're, they're going to lose their livelihoods as well because they're, they're not going to be able to do it anymore. So I, I think this is really kind of interesting because I lump it in the category of be careful what you wish for because you might get it. I, I understand that there were some people who drove for Uber and Lyft who wanted to be treated as employees. They, they wanted to say, hey, look, we, 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 we think that we're kind of getting ripped off by this company and, you know, we don't think that we're being treated fairly. And, you know, we, we want to have the benefits and we want to be treated like as, as part-time employees and we should get all these protections. All right, fine. The legislature agreed. The legislature moved in. They passed the laws. And that's all well and good. But now the problem is you got Uber and Lyft. They say, all right, this just isn't our business model. And, you know, we aren't going to operate under these terms and conditions. So, California, you can pass any law that you want. But at the end of the day, we get to decide whether we want to do business here. And it is quite likely that unless there's some, you know, major sea change, at least for the foreseeable future, what you're going to have is nobody's going to be driving for Uber and Lyft in California because they're not going to be operating in Uber and Uber in California. And if you're one of the people that depend on these ride-sharing services, um, I, I guess it's three words. Take the bus. This is Jeff Wagner.